Today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 1, 30 through chapter 2, verse 16. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, have not, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who uh, would like to go to children's worship or nursery, now would be a good time uh, to walk them over. Miss Brittany will be uh, going over with them. Or run over, you know, whichever one. It's my daughter right there. We live in divided times, don't we? And last week we looked at the arrogance problem that undergirds all this division. We live in a culture that celebrates and cultivates arrogance as a virtue, and that's become second nature, not just to unbelievers. This has become second nature to Christians. And when Christians are arrogant toward one another, especially in the local church, that's destructive. When we feel like we've got some wisdom or insight or knowledge that other Christians don't have, it's easy to start thinking that we're we're better than them, or at the very least, We prefer to hang out with the Christians who think like us. Think back on the strife of 2020 and 2021. 
how easy it was to kind of separate off into our enclaves of thought, not just outside the church, but inside the church. And that's not just a betrayal of each other. It's a betrayal of our shared Savior and our shared kingdom mission. Paul's contention in 1 Corinthians, which we saw last week, is that this way of operating, this way of thinking, which he calls worldly wisdom, this social game of gaining wisdom and associating with the right people, it might improve your social status. You might get ahead in the world. It might make you feel smart and and great to be included in a community of like-minded people, but it's rotting your soul. But the gospel, the message of Christ and Him crucified, Christ is the one truth, the one wisdom that will heal you that will restore you and will grow your soul. So Paul says, yeah, you can feel like you're smart and you're right and you're wise and you can be really popular and have a lot of friends. That's not going to change you in here, though. Regardless of what party line you take, that's not going to fix your heart. So let me ask you a, a, a personal question. Has Jesus actually changed you at a soul level? Has Jesus changed the way that you think? Has Jesus changed uh, the way that you live, the way that you talk, the way that you work, the way that you rest, the way that you spend your money? I mean, sure, maybe your wisdom and your associations have improved your social status among some. Maybe you've even changed your habits some. But has Jesus so changed you that you're like a new person? That you're not who you used to be? Remember what Paul said in verses 30 and 31 last week. Uh, Jonathan just read it for us. Look, in chapter 1. It says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So these other wisdoms, these other insights, this other knowledge you can have, but here's wisdom from God, and he goes on and says, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is saying, if you have received Jesus, if you've received him who is wisdom from God, Paul's assumption is that will then change you substantially, qualitatively. Look at it again. Let's read it aloud. Todd's had us reading Allowed. Uh, so let's start with uh, verse 30. Let's, let's read them together. If you got the ESV, that's what I'm reading from. Let's, let's go together. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul says, if you're redeemed by Christ, there's something happening in you that will make you more righteous that will make you more like Jesus. You will be sanctified. You'll become holy like God. You are redeemed. You're set free from your old way of living. You are a new creation if you've received this wisdom from God. Christian, all this morning I want you to be looking at yourself and asking, has a change occurred? Have I received this wisdom from God? Or have I just picked up some new habits, some new religion, a new community? Because that's the way of worldly wisdom. Has Jesus changed you at a heart level? If you like to take notes, here's the first blank in the back of your worship guide. 
You flip back there, there's some space to take notes. First blank is this. Christians live differently from the world and from who they used to be because of a change that has occurred within them. Christians live differently from the world and from who they used to be because of a change that has occurred within them. A spiritual change has occurred. And over and over again, the Bible talks about this in different ways. The Bible talks about you've received a new heart, you receive a new spirit, you become a new creation. But what is this change, this fundamental change that Jesus wants to do in us? Let's walk through it together. Here's your next blank. The gospel and how it works within us is a mystery and a miracle. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, and how it works within us is a mystery and a miracle. Let's look again at verse 30 through chapter 2, verse 1. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, as Paul speaking to the Corinthian church in Greece, and I, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, there's an interesting textual issue here that I want to mention if you'll let me nerd out for like three minutes. Can I do that on a Sunday morning? So, kids, do any of y'all know what language the, the New Testament is written in? What you grown-ups? Do you all know what language the New Testament's written in? Greek, that's right. Old Testament's in Hebrew mostly. New Testament is written in ancient Greek, which is a language that I absolutely love. I started studying ancient Greek when I was a senior in high school. I got my undergraduate in classical languages and history, and then I took every class uh, that I could at my seminary. I exhausted all the Greek classes there. I know ancient Greek really, really well. Uh, you know, when you look at like the things I've actually been trained in and I got decent grades at, it's preaching and, and interpersonal communication in Greek. So I'm, I'm, I'm a Greek nerd. So when I tell you that the English translations of the Bible are very, very good, you can trust what I'm saying. They're really a great representation of what the original text says. But I want to point out one strange, uncommon intricacy to Bible translation that a lot of people don't understand. And it's a strange intricacy that I have heard people use to argue against Christianity, and they don't know what they're talking about. It goes something like this. Well, the Bible's been copied over and over and over and over. How can you really trust that what we've got is the Bible, or it's been interpreted or translated over and over and over? How can we know that this is even what it really originally said? So I'll agree. The books of the Bible have been copied thousands and thousands of times, often by hand. And in ancient times, what that looked like was a scribe who's sitting there with one copy of it, and he's writing it by longhand. How often do you think errors are going to occur when a guy's doing that? Often. Yes, that's, that's fair. You've done this before. You'll be writing, and, and there's like one word in this line and the same word in that line, and you'll jump down, and you'll skip a whole line. Or maybe words will get swapped. This is the sorts of things that would happen. Uh, words would get swapped, would get misspelled. Maybe a synonym for a word would get put in there uh, instead of the original word. And it's not intentional. It's all accidental. But occasionally, a scribe would be reading the text and would see something that just didn't make sense. So he thinks, you know what, I bet the last guy in line made a mistake. I know what this was supposed to say here. And so they would just add a little editorial gloss. They might change something. They're, they're not 
ill-meaning. They're trying to preserve the, the text. But these are the sorts of things that happen. And guys like me get trained to look at these different manuscripts that have existed throughout the years and try to figure out what's the most original reading here. But don't panic. Here's the catch. Thanks to archaeology, we have lots and lots and lots of copies of the books of the Bible, some of which are only decades after they were written. So what we can do is say, well, here's a later copy. Here's an earlier copy. Let's look at these two things and make the decision of why, why did this get changed along the way? Now, why would I bring that up in a sermon? Why, why bring that up now? Well, first of all, or why have I not brought it up until now? Because the translations we have are really, really good. Most of the translations we have are based upon the oldest, most original manuscripts. But occasionally one sneaks through, and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 is one of those examples. There are older manuscripts that use a different word in verse 1, and this is how those earlier manuscripts would read. Look with me in your worship guide. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the mystery of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the later texts read testimony, but the earlier say mystery. Now, I went to a lot of trouble just to get that one word of difference. Why? Well, first of all, because the Bible is God's word. His word is worth the extra trouble. And if there's a text that seems more original, our theology would demand that we go with that one. But there's a second reason. The idea of the gospel being a mystery fits into Paul's overarching argument in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. So last week we saw that the Corinthian people there in Greece loved feeling smart. They loved being known as wise. They loved associating with people who had insight. They loved classics, degrees, and knowing about ancient Greek, that, that sort of thing. And Paul says, you want wisdom? You want insight? You need go no further than the gospel. And the gospel is a mystery in and of itself. If you could get a glimpse of the gospel, if you could begin to drink of the mystery that is the gospel, you'll have a wisdom that is far beyond the wisdom of this world. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the mystery of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, when I came preaching the gospel, I preached a mystery to you. But I didn't use highfalutin rhetoric or arguments. I kept it simple. Because the content of the gospel is simple. The content of the gospel is very simple. It's this. Jesus is the Christ. He's the king of Israel, and he's the king of the world, and he was crucified for sinners like you and me. That message is not complicated. It's not even mysterious. You deserve to die for your sins. Jesus died in, in your place. The king died in your place. That's the gospel. The content of the gospel is not complex or mysterious. It's very simple. But, here's your next blank. The mystery of the gospel, namely its truth, beauty, and power, are not unlocked by human understanding or reason. Through human understanding or reason, you're not going to be able to chew on the gospel long enough to find its truth, beauty, and power. It's not unlocked by those things. So the content of the gospel, the message of the gospel is very easy to communicate. You can share it with a kid. Uh, anybody can understand it. 
But no preacher, no theologian, no Christian witness, no apologist will be persuasive enough or compelling enough or smart enough to make another person believe the gospel. You can't make another person find the gospel beautiful. No amount of cajoling or apologetics or intellectual finesse can change a person's heart or make them a new creation. That's the power of the gospel. It changes us in our heart. And I can't do that to someone else, no matter how wise, no matter how smart or how intellectual I am. Here's your next blank. Therefore, while hearing the gospel message is essential, conversion happens when the Spirit does a miracle in the life of an unbeliever. That's when conversion happens. Conversion happens when the Spirit does a miracle in the life of an unbeliever. And that, my friends, is a mysterious work. For the Holy Spirit to open the heart of a person so that they see their sin, so that they see their guilt and shame, and they flee to the cross of Christ, only the Spirit can do that. Look at verses 3 through 5. And I was with you, Paul says, in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul says, it's not my words that converted your heart. No, God's Holy Spirit showed up and did something in you. He did something powerful in your heart so that you would believe. You didn't believe because of my wisdom and the things that I said. You believed because of the power of God. Consider this. Every time a human being believes the gospel, a miracle has happened. Someone hopelessly addicted to sin and self that has been broken says, no, you know what? I think Jesus is better than this. Jesus is more satisfying than the life I've been living. Jesus is what I need. And when a person makes that kind of a value judgment, when their heart and their mind changes that much, it's a miracle. And we can't do miracles. So you can share the gospel with your children. You can share the gospel with your neighbors and with your friends. You can use whatever persuasive means you desire, but it will have no effect if the Holy Spirit doesn't accompany the word and change their hearts. So here's my question again. Has the miracle occurred in your life? I'm not asking, have you believed some ideas about Jesus? I'm not asking, are you orthodox or reformed or evangelical? I'm asking, has the Holy Spirit changed you? Have you experienced the power of God stirring you to reject your old life of sin and self and then urging you to pursue a new life of knowing God and glorifying Him because of the work of Jesus? Has the Holy Spirit changed your life in that fundamental way? Here's your next blank. When this change occurs in a Christian's life, they believe the gospel, love the gospel, and live differently because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. When God makes this change in a person's life, they believe the gospel, love the gospel, and live differently because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So Paul looks at these Christians in Corinth, and they've got an arrogance problem. They were dividing up into party lines in their church and they were judging one another because each of them had received their own special wisdom. And in their arrogance, they didn't look like Christians at all. 
They weren't thinking differently. They weren't living differently. They looked just like everyone else. And quite frankly, that's what's happened in so many Christian churches, including our own, over the last two years. We've taken the same party lines. We've had the same arguments, and we played according to the same rules, and we haven't looked very Christian. We haven't looked very different. And so speaking to those Christians, Paul says, the spirit-indwelled Christian believes, thinks, and lives differently. We, if you have the Holy Spirit, believe, live, and think differently. But the Corinthian Christians weren't acting that way. We don't always act that way. How should we be, though? What's the ideal image of the Christian life and the Christian community? Here's your next blank. Christians live differently from the world and from who they used to be when they think differently about their lives. Christians live differently from the world and from who they used to be when they think differently about their lives. We're called to think differently. Some of you know that I went to a gaming tournament uh, a few weeks ago. I know I, everyone's been asking me how I did. I got 186th out of 502. So I'm not too good. Um, so I was in Fort Worth, Texas with 502 of my closest nerd friends trying to clobber one another in a card game. So I'm pretty new to this game. I'm pretty new to this community. And uh, so they don't know I'm a pastor yet. I try to keep it under my hat for a little while. And after one round, I walked up to a group of guys from Louisiana. We had a decent showing uh, from Louisiana. And they were standing around and talking. And I noticed as I was walking up, they were laughing about a prayer that was printed on a, a little bit of card stock that one of them's Uber driver had given to him when he was getting out of the car. And so they began to read this prayer uh, aloud. And as they were chuckling and reading this prayer aloud... There wasn't actually anything that I would have disagreed with theologically in the prayer that they were laughing at. Now, I'll tell you this. The prayer was not sensitive. It was not pastoral. It was not winsome. uh, But it wasn't wrong either. And here's the kicker. So after the prayer was read, this guy says, I mean, fear God. (laughs) Why would I fear God? That's ridiculous. And I thought, oh, man, is this it? Do I need to, like, is this where I need to step in? And another guy piped up and kind of showed his theological cards by saying, he goes, well, I think when when Christians say fear God, you know, traditionally they mean more of respect God than to, like, fear him with terror. So then I listened as they continued making fun of the prayer, and I realized while I was staying, I was already working on the sermon, I realized these guys can't understand this. They, They don't really get the heart of this prayer, and it's not a problem with their mental faculties. These are like, as we'd say in in Boston, these are wicked smart guys. It's their spiritual perception. They don't have eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to receive that fearing God is actually the beginning of wisdom. Here's my point. It's your next point. People who don't have the spirit will not and cannot think the way that Christians do. They're going to value things differently than we do. Uh, They're going to think about things differently. They're going to look at the Bible in a different way uh, than we do. It's like comparing apples and oranges. So Paul talks a lot about the world's wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God. Where does the world's wisdom come from? It comes from mortals. As wise as Socrates was, he was still a man. He was mortal. He was limited. And thus, Socrates' wisdom is limited. Meanwhile, 
Where do Christians get wisdom from? What does Paul say? say? He says, we receive eternal, glorious wisdom from an eternal, glorious God. And he has given us the capacity to understand this eternal wisdom, to love his wisdom, and then to live that wisdom out. It's like comparing apples and oranges. Look again at verses 6 uh, through 11 in chapter 2. Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, namely the gospel. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through whom? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Many of unbelievers are smart, even brilliant. But they don't have the Spirit of God. The Spirit who knows the depths of God resides with and in the Christian so that you could know an eternal wisdom that is intended for your glory. But how does an unbeliever determine what's true? And Paul says it in verse 9. The unbeliever uses his eyes, his ears, and his heart to know things. Look again at verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's saying that the world understands, thinks in a certain way that cannot perceive the things of God. How does an unbeliever learn what's true? It's your next blank. Human wisdom is rooted in the authority of observation and testing in the context of community. Human wisdom is rooted in the authority of observation and testing in the context of community. We all understand this. We went to school. We took science class. How can a person know something? Well, you observe it, you measure it, you test it, and you do that in conjunction with a community that shares knowledge. The eye sees, the ear hears, and the hearts of men imagine. We observe, we think, we test, we discuss, we know. That's where human wisdom comes from. Is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with science or doctors or philosophers or the community vindicating what is true? No. I recommend you go to the doctor and do what they say. Why? Because I don't have eyes and ears and a mind to understand the things that they do. I trust my doctor on doctor things. They understand the body and biology and those sorts of things better than I do. You know what I never ask my doctor, though? I don't ask my doctor, how can I be more righteous? I don't ask my doctor, how can I be more righteous? Like Jesus. I guess I could ask John Crowder that. I could ask John that. But my doctor, I, I don't ask him questions about my soul. I don't ask him questions about eternity. Why? Because those things can't be seen with the eye, heard with the ear, or imagined in the hearts of men. It's the work of the Spirit. And that applies to every human discipline. Here's your next blank Human wisdom is helpful. So long as we realize it doesn't address the most important things. 
It deals with things passing away, while God deals with the eternal. Human wisdom is helpful so long as we realize it doesn't address the most important things. It deals with things passing away, while God deals with the eternal. Let's look again at verses 30 and 31 in chapter 1, and then we'll jump down to chapter 2, verse 14. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then verse 14. In chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of Christ, uh, the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul looks at the Corinthian Christians who are thinking like the world and dividing along party lines. He says, guys, this way of thinking, this thing you're doing, the supposed wisdom that you got, it's not going to make you more like Jesus. You're thinking in ways that are foolish. It's folly. Well, let's apply this to ourselves. So last week, we realized that we have an arrogance problem ourselves. That we easily look down on other Christians or talk bad about them or at least association with the Christians who think like us, just like the world does. We often think like the world does, dividing our own community up along party lines based upon doctrines or politics or vaccines or masks or whatever. How does this happen? How do we fall into that trap of operating like the world? How do we go from years ago being one unified church, hundreds if not thousands of denominations? Why do churches break up over Italy, little theological squabbles. And why did churches collapse over the cultural issues of the last two years? Why? How does this happen? Here's your next point. People who have the Spirit can, but do not always think in ways that line up with the Spirit. Just because you have the Spirit, and just because you can think this way, We do not always think this way. Paul's not telling the Corinthian Christians, you're not really Christians. You don't have the Spirit. That's why you're thinking this way. No, he's saying, you have the Spirit. Therefore, you shouldn't be thinking in these ways about each other. You can think the right way, but you're not. Let's look in verses 12 and 13. Paul says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I'm trying to tell you the same things that Paul was telling them. It's been very easy in the last two years to think about each other in the ways that unbelievers think about each other. We have not always been thinking according to spiritual truth, but according to the world's wisdom. So how should we be thinking? Here's your next blank. Spirit-led thinking means considering your life and making choices in a way informed by Christ and Him crucified. Let me say that again. This is the starting of it. Spirit-led thinking means considering your life and making choices in a way informed by Christ and Him crucified. Let's think about your decision-making, just personally. 
When you make a decision, what's your process? Whether it's a, a family decision, a business decision, a medical decision, a financial decision, a political decision, any decision, what's the process that you follow? If you're anything like me, most of us probably weigh the pros and cons. You maybe even write out a list. One side, the pros, and here are the things that I don't like about this decision. We, we look at what makes the most sense, and then we, we go with it, right? We use our eyes and our ears and our hearts, our, our intellect, our imaginations, and we try to make the best decision that we can. And those decisions might make us the most money. They might lead us in a way that seemed right and good, But does the decision make us more holy? Does it lead us in the path of sanctification? The path that God would have us be on. Look again at verses 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. But are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. But is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul says that you, Christian, as an individual and as a community, have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of Christ at your disposal. We have an eternal perspective, namely God himself through the Spirit, living within us, the one who searches the depths of God to help us make the right decisions, wise decisions, as in wisdom from God, wise decisions that lead to righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So what I want to argue for is a different way of making decisions. I've heard a lot of Christians talking about decisions they've made because of science or research or the Constitution or morality. And you know what I don't hear many Christians talking about? Christians making decisions based upon the gospel of Christ and him crucified. Paul said that's the only thing I wanted to know among you was Christ and him crucified. Because what does God's Holy Spirit do when he works within us? He works in us so that we would believe the gospel, so that we would love the gospel and thusly live differently. The spirit-indwelled person believes, thinks, and lives differently. But what does that look like practically? Here's your next blank. To be spirit-led is to daily choose to live your life in a cruciform way. To be spirit-led is to daily choose to live your life in a cruciform way, or cross-shaped is what cruciform means. You could write that if you prefer cross-shaped. What is the mind of Christ that Paul says we have? But what did Jesus think was the best thing to do? What was the most important choice that Jesus ever made? He chose to die. That was it. That's the mind of Christ. He chose to die. To die for the eternal good of his enemies and his world. So the rulers of the world look at Jesus and the decision that he made and respond, well, that's ridiculous, Jesus. You think wrong. (laughs) Salvation through defeat, life through death, that's foolishness. Your eyes, ears, and heart will tell you death is the end, pal. That was a dumb decision. But Jesus knew 
the truth. He knew God's wisdom from eternity past intended for our glory that this was the means of making all things right. That's the mind of Christ. To lay down your life for the good, the eternal good of someone else. When was the last time you made a decision that put you at risk for the eternal good of another? Notice I didn't say take a risk for the Constitution of the United States. Our public servants do that all the time. Notice I didn't say take a risk for the preservation of your family. Even the Gentiles do that. I said, when did you last make a risky decision for the eternal good of another? For their redemption, righteousness, and sanctification. That's what it looks like to be spirit-led. It looks like choosing to die for the eternal good of your neighbor. Stated another way, here's your next blank. To be spirit-led is to daily choose to invest your life in matters of eternal importance. Investing yourself in matters of eternal importance. That's the way that Jesus thinks. He made decisions with an eternal end goal. So here's what I'm advocating for. Before you make a decision, go to Jesus. Observe his life. Observe his death and resurrection and ask him, what decision, Jesus, would you make if you were in my shoes? If you were in the same position, what does this decision have to do with eternity? And how can I lay my life down, like you, Jesus, for the eternal good of the others in this circumstance? And then make your decision based on the example of Jesus. You have the mind of Christ. So think the way that he does. The spirit-indwelled person believes, thinks, and therefore lives differently. And, and, And here's my point. In the last year and a half, I've heard a lot of Christians arguing and taking sides over all manner of things. And it's still going on. And we're still using the language of the world. But what we should be discussing is this. Here's your last blank. The question that we should be asking when faced with a decision is this. What sacrifice can I make in this circumstance? that will lead to the greatest eternal benefit for my neighbors? This is the question we, we as Christians, we can be talking about this. What sacrifice can I make in this circumstance that will lead to the greatest eternal benefit for my neighbors? If this was our starting point, if this is what we were discussing, I think as a community we could have some very productive conversations about the things that are going on in the world today, but it's just not how we're thinking. Christians in America... Are, are just not well known for being the crazy people who lay their lives down for the eternal well-being of their neighbors. Why not? Well, you know, a hundred years ago, Christians were the, the majority culture in our country. We enjoyed freedom, power, and cultural carte blanche, more or less. And I, it ain't that way no more. And as we feel that cultural influence slipping away, what are we, what are we doing? We seem to be most concerned with maintaining power, protecting our freedom, and regaining cultural traction. That's just not what Jesus did. He was a poor man in a religious minority who was ultimately martyred by the government. (laughs) I mean, he really couldn't be more different from us. But what was his mind? What did he concern himself with? He concerned himself with the message of the gospel and making sacrifices for the eternal good of his neighbors. I'm convinced we need to be less concerned with the geopolitical scene and more concerned with our neighborhoods. We need to be less concerned about our rights 
and more concerned with our witness. We need to be less concerned about the cultural hot-button issues and more concerned with how to winsomely communicate the gospel. We need to be spending less time on our financial strategies and more time praying for people by name that the Holy Spirit would change their hearts. You may hear that and think, but shouldn't we fight for religious freedom? Shouldn't we we work uh, for the forgotten and uh, for the, the unborn? Yes. But the question we have to ask is, what do we love the most? Do we love our freedom? Do we love our power? Do we love our position? Or do we love the souls of men, women, boys, and girls? Are we sacrificing for them? Or are we sacrificing for ourselves? How do we make decisions? How do we live Are we using our eyes and ears and our imagination just like the world? Or are we going to Jesus and asking him, the one who died, how should we live? Because Jesus lived in a way that looked crazy, just foolish. Because he gave his life for the salvation of the world. He loved his neighbor, even his enemy, to the nth degree. So also the spirit-indwelled person believes, thinks, and lives differently. So in closing, why did you believe the gospel? When you became a Christian, what was about Christ and Him crucified that seemed more attractive to you than sin and self? Have you believed the gospel in that way? Has the miracle occurred within you wherein you see that Jesus and His way of life is better than power, position, riches, and the praise of men? He's better even than life itself. Or have you simply only assented to? with your mind, to the ideas of the gospel. If you heard the gospel, like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. Because you need more than that. To trust the gospel is not just to see its reasonability, but to love it, and more importantly, to love Christ. And to give yourself over to him. And if that happens, you've got the spirit. You can know the mind of Christ, and you can live in a way informed by it. If you have the spirit, then, are you seeking the spirit's guidance. And I don't mean have you been waiting for God to give you some kind of goosebumps about a decision, but have you looked at the decisions you make and asked, God, how can I imitate the death of Jesus in this? How can I make a sacrifice in this situation so that others will benefit eternally from it? If we live in that kind of a spirit-responsive way, it'll make us radically different, not just from the world, but from who we used to be. It'll make us into a community of cruciform people, living out the life and love of Jesus. The spirit-indwelled person believes, thinks, and lives differently. How do you need to think and live differently? Let's pray. Father, as we continue to sort through the, 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 the fallout of the last two years, which we didn't ask for, uh, but here we are. Lord, um, Help us figure out the, 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 the foundation of conversation and relationship with each other. As we'll see next week, Lord, you don't call us to agree on everything, but you do call us to agree in this, our love for each other and our love for you and our shared kingdom mission. But, Lord, it begins with how we think, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our lives, and then how we think about each other. So, Lord, I want to pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl who's here this morning. First, that we would become so convinced of the goodness of Jesus 
that we would see him as the most glorious, wonderful, beautiful person we've ever heard of. Someone greater than what we could even imagine. May we be enraptured with our love and trust of Jesus. And then, Lord, change the way we think about ourselves and about each other in light of Jesus' cross. Shape our lives according to the life of Jesus. And help us, Lord, to have the courage and the love uh, to sacrifice ourselves for the people around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.